on to our lesson tonight, which is talking about the spiritual focus of Jesus. Now, of course, we said that God is a spirit, and not being in the flesh, he has no source of conflict within himself. Humans live in the flesh, but we're spiritual beings, and so that sets up the basis for conflict in humans. And in the first class, I asked the question, how do we reconcile God then with mankind? How can God appreciate the, the uh, um, difficulty of living in the flesh? And the answer that you all gave very quickly was through Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he assumed flesh, and yet somehow managed to maintain 100% spiritual focus as he went through his life. And we're going to demonstrate some evidence of that tonight and ask ourselves a few questions uh, toward the end. So let's get started with a prayer. And if you'll just bow with me for a moment. So really, I don't have a lot of slides tonight, but what I do have are a series of texts that I'd just like for us to read through, but I'd like for us to read through them very carefully in detail. And notice the interaction of Jesus with people. And as we read these interactions of Jesus with people, uh, we want to notice in particular Jesus' focus on the spiritual aspect of man, while man has a tendency to try to draw Jesus back into the physical realm, okay? Before we do that, does anybody have any comment that they'd like to make on the progression of the class so far? Anything that Kyle talked about on Sunday? We'll let Kyle answer all your hard questions. Uh, any questions or comments that you'd like to make up to this point in time? We have some time. Crickets. Okay. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 50. And you'll see that the spiritual focus of Jesus began very early in his life. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. They were good Jewish people. That's what they were supposed to do at these Feasts of the end Gathering. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So the assumption is that he's in good company. It's okay if he's gone, he's going to be hanging out with people that we know, and we're headed back to our hometown, so we're in a traveling caravan with a lot of people we're not worried about. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. No kidding. After three days, they found him in the temple. So this is no minor search. Uh, we've, we've lost our kid. We lost Ian one time at the state fair, and it took us about 45 minutes, probably, I don't know how long it was, to get him back. Um, Ian was the one who had the tendency to just run off uh, with complete abandon, not even looking back to see a video. You know, he's just a little tyke, and he's gone in this just sea of people. Well, it didn't take us too long to find him, but I'll tell you, in just a short time, a lot of anxiety was generated. You can imagine what they must have been like after three days. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them 
and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. As, and his mother said to him, now this is where the interplay begins, and notice the dialogue. Son, why have you treated us so? Why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, anybody would think that, right? We, that, that's exactly the kind of conversation we would have with our kids if they'd been gone for a long time and we didn't know where they were. Why have you done this? Don't you know we would be looking for you in great distress? Jesus genuinely doesn't seem to understand. Why were you looking for me? He said. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or some versions might read, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? In verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So we got two people talking back and forth that are missing each other completely. My question to you is, and I think it's probably pretty obvious based on the topic tonight, but why are they missing each other? One was thinking one way and the other was thinking the other. Okay, what are the two ways? Okay, the spiritual versus the physical. It seems clear to them that, that they ought to be worried about him. It only makes sense. Anybody who lives in the flesh, with, if their child is missing for that period of time, are going to be very distraught till they find him. But if you're thinking like Jesus, who's thinking very differently than they are, What might your reasonable response to that be? I mean, let's embellish on his response a little bit and think about what he might be thinking here. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? What's going on in his mind? Duh. You don't have to look for me. Okay. And even if I wasn't in my father's house, I'd still be somewhere doing my father's business and if you accept that God has sent me to you, Mary, who should, who, who should know that better than Mary, why would you worry that something outlandish was going to happen to him that was outside the control of the Father? Kyle. There's a bit of a contextual thing that I'd like to bring up because you brought up the two levels which, which they're looking at this, but there's a little bit of play here. Uh, in Jewish tradition, a boy would start Hebrew school at around three years old, and then at 12 years old, he would begin to take on a job or learn the trade of his father. So naturally, everyone's assuming, well, Jesus is going to become a carpenter like his dad at 12 years old. He is taking on the work of his father, but not the father that everyone's thinking of. So when he says, did you not know I'd be about my father's business? He's saying, you're going to, you know, you expect to find me in the workshop. I am being about my father's business, but here I am in the temple. Different workshop. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very interesting. Anybody else? Okay. So Jesus genuinely doesn't seem to understand their concern. Either that or he's chiding them, and I doubt that he would talk to his parents in a, in a chiding way. Um, but they genuinely didn't understand him, and they didn't understand his response. 
Now Mary, like she often does, lays it to her heart. We, we see that phrase over and over again. She's taking account of all these things. She's laying them back and thinking about it. And I'm sure down the road as Jesus matures and after his death and resurrection, um, a lot of things are going to become obvious to Mary that she has laid to her heart and um, <clears throat> later had a time to, to reflect on. So this is just one example from early in the life of Jesus, how he's focused on one set of facts, one set of ideas, and the people around him are focused on something else, and it causes them to miss each other. Another example that we've talked about already is the, is the example of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and we're not going to go through that passage with the same level of detail because I'd like us to have a little bit more time to spend in John chapter 4 tonight. But if you remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being a leader of Israel and not understanding things. Well, what is it that he didn't understand? He didn't understand when Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is saying, I don't want to think too much about the details of that process, but it doesn't sound all that tasteful. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. You must be born of the water and of the spirit, because without such, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, the water and the spirit. So Nicodemus is thinking one way, and Jesus is thinking another. And Jesus says to him, I can't even talk to you about physical things. Do you understand? How are you going to understand if I talk about spiritual things? And he further says the, something then weird about the wind blowing and here and there, and you don't know where it's coming to, coming from or where it's going to. What's he talking about? He's saying that spirits are not like the flesh. In order to understand the wind, you've got to think like the wind. If you want to understand something you can't see, you've got to think in terms of... of analogies to help you understand these things. So Jesus is telling him again that if you want to focus on fleshly things, you're not going to understand the things of the Spirit. And he says, so you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? So again, now Jesus does seem to be chiding him, doesn't he? You really ought to know if you're going to be a teacher of Israel, you ought, your mind ought to be able to grasp spiritual things. But Nicodemus, like his parents here in this case, really don't seem to get it. And I think the point here that I'm trying to make is when someone is acting according to the spirit instead of according to the flesh, we can't expect people who are fleshly minded, people who are only earthly minded, to get it. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand what we're doing or why. But if we're acting according to the spirit, those who are thinking spiritually, even though they might have made a different choice than we made under the same circumstances, at least they're going to get it. Oh, I see what he's doing there. He's thinking differently than these people around him. He's thinking about spiritual things. Let me give you a, just a, a flippant example. Um, there was an elder here many years ago, and I've heard the story told, and many of you have heard the story told, too. Um, of Dwayne Laws getting a call from a telemarketer and the guy asked him first thing when he picked up the phone said are you making enough money and Dwayne replied well yeah I'm making I'm making enough money and the guy was completely dumbfounded he never heard that response before he didn't know what to say next fleshly people don't respond that way <laughs> only people who are thinking 
differently than other people respond in that kind of way. Okay, so the next passage I'd like to go to is this one in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. And this is the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And the striking thing about this passage is that this lady is, is uh, for all of her wonderful qualities, seems a little bit dense to things of the spirit. It takes a long time to drill it through her head. But just watch the dialogue as it takes place. It's really masterful. So in verse 5, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you're a Jew? Ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. So two things there that are important, apparently, in setting up walls between these two. One, she's a Samaritan, and the other, she's a woman. For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, now watch it. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay? So he just inserts something here as a teaser, going to draw her into a conversation. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She totally missed it, didn't she? She's still talking about water in the well. And, uh, okay, so are you going to, what are you going to do, some kind of a miracle here? Are you greater than Jacob? That, uh, that, that you don't, that you have some special access to water that I don't have? Well, why would he say, give me water, and then turn around and say, I'm going to give you water? It's not the same water, but she doesn't get it, does she? So Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Okay, got that? Whoever drinks this water that I give him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Still didn't get it. Jesus says to her, oh, this is a twist. Go call your husband. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And my response that I always want to insert there is you, you're very perceptive. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped us. What do you do when you're faced with um, an issue like this 
by someone who's obviously now apparently a teacher, a religious teacher of some sort, and you've been <coughs> called out by that person, um, the obvious thing to do is change the subject, right? <laughs> Ask a tough religious question that he'll love to answer and get, get off of you as a topic. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's gonna bring up a religious controversy as a diversion, it seems. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Very straightforward answers, aren't they? Salvation is from the Jews. He just tells facts. But the hour is coming, he says, and now it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And notice again, as Kyle mentioned, that the physical location is being replaced by a different location, no longer in this mountain or that mountain, but where? In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, such people to worship him. Not, not people who worship in this place or that place, not Jews or Samaritans, but such people. What kind of people? People who will worship in spirit and in truth. And it only makes sense, after all, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the physical being replaced with the spiritual. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things Kind of an answer is that to what Jesus just said. She thinks he's speculating. She thinks he's just another guy who's gonna tell her what he thinks is the truth about all this and she's gonna set him straight. Well, you know, when Messiah gets here, he'll tell us the truth about all this. I don't have to accept what you're saying. Jesus said to her, and as far as I know, this is the only time Jesus ever says this. I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, perfect timing. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Is there any indication here that she ever got the point that Jesus was making about the water? Tidbits. Maybe, but they just kind of passed each other up. But she did get this, he knew more than he should know. <laughs> they went out of the town where they were coming to him. Okay, so again, um, Jesus has got his eye, you, you know, you, as a kid, 
you've ever played any sports from the time you're a little kid all the way up through however high you get in your sport you always hear the same thing keep your eye on the ball don't take your eye off the ball um, and Jesus never took his eye off the ball and people around him didn't even know where the ball was people around him didn't see it they didn't understand Okay, so let me just prompt you to think as we're going through some examples here. I've given you some personal examples from human experience. I've given you a couple examples from scripture. I'm going to give you another one about Jesus and the way he thought and the way he taught. <clears throat> what examples do you have from your life or what examples can you think of from scripture? of people acting in a way that's otherworldly because they're focused on the spirit while the people around them are, are focused on the flesh. I think anybody that you're trying to teach feels that way. They're fleshly. And, and no matter what you talk, it's like when Jesus was he taught his apostles more than he taught anybody else. And they still didn't understand what he was talking about. So how is a just a mortal human like us, how are we supposed to understand it? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Jesus had his disciples with him for a really long time and he had to really drill, drill them yeah. to get them to, before they began to understand. And oftentimes they still didn't understand. Well, they especially until... didn't understand when he was trying to tell them he was gonna die. Right. You're not going to die. Peter said, you're not going to die. They had a picture, a completely different picture of the kind of king they were going to get. And, uh, and so they, they were missing it. Okay, Kim? I was with the way Kroger and the shopping and this, this sweet little man came up to me out of nowhere and said, have you think, are you blessed by Jesus? And so we had a nice conversation. And so I was in the stores about as long as he was, but I was kind of observing him. I think he was asking similar questions of people. Mm, okay. And just to look at the expressions on their faces. And as they, some of them were smiling politely and, and others were speaking in Spanish. But that was a very nice thing to, to have said to me and to watch. Okay. People probably just thought he was a nut, right? A lot of people would think he was a nut. Pardon? I said I would have laughed. You would have laughed? You would have been scared? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, my dad uh, remodeled part of a house for an elderly couple at, at church back home. And, Somebody said something to him about, well, that's that's not money in the bank. He, he was doing it for free. And they said, well, that's not money in the bank. And he said, well, not in this bank account. There's <laughs> some, something to that effect. And uh, that's just what popped in my mind. So laying up treasures in heaven instead of laying up treasures on earth. How do you lay up treasures on treasures in heaven? What did I see in the well, I was just going to say, I think that sometimes you see that when people are approaching death and people that are really in the spirit frequently, you know, are 
there's an excitement or an anticipation because that's what you've spent your life wanting to do is go and be with the Lord versus somebody that's just in the flesh. I don't think they have that same um, excitement or um, just sense of peace. A 96-year-old man in Auburn just passed away, and he was probably one of the godliest men I've ever known. And I was asked to sit with him probably the last six weeks of his life at the nursing home. He talked more in those six weeks than I could have ever done for him. And um, his name was Jimmy Berger, if anybody knows him. And, uh, uh, just the God, just, I mean, he just glowed with God's grace in his face, and you, he wasn't scared at all. And, you know, he just talked about his life and how he always strived to be a godly man. And, and I, I'm just relating to what she's saying, you know, because it, cause I've seen other people die that were scared to death. Mm-hmm. From working in a nursing home. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it's very often people who have some understanding of grace who can die in peace and comfort, and people who don't understand it who can't. Or, or if they don't, if they understand it, they don't have access to it. So, um, I, I had an experience once when I was a very young man. Um, I was riding in a van with a man to. Uh, Uh, believe it or not, to a uh, um, singing practice for a barbershop group. And uh, it was mostly, I mean, like uh, 80% of the group was above the age of 70. (laughs) I was pretty pretty rare in that group. In terms of my age, I was, I guess, in my uh, early 30s at the time. And uh, when I got in the van, I was just making light conversation, said, how are you doing? his response was, and I was totally unprepared for the response. He said, and I quote, I'm dying. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> uh, what do you do with that one? Okay. Totally unprepared. But um, I hope that if given the same opportunity now, I would be better equipped to handle a comment like that. Can't you think of much better ways to handle that than just be floored by it? I mean, if if your mind, if you're thinking in the spirit, if you're thinking about things that pertain to the spirit, how do you handle that? Well, you ask them something like, well, how do you feel about that? What what do you what is your relationship with God like and are you okay with it you know those kinds of questions but I was as I say just went behind the ears and just did have, had no idea what to do with that comment and he was probably old enough he should have known that maybe he didn't know it I don't know I just wanted to see what kind of reaction he'd get out of me but he was honest okay he just told me the truth a lot of people won't tell you the truth when you ask them how they're doing but Debbie. <laughs> Just don't ask me about it. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Sorry, I asked. <laughs> what else? Debbie's mom is one of the greatest examples I've ever had. Her grace. She's been in a wheelchair confined to the house for years. And I used to, up until this last summer, I used to mow her yard every week and look forward to it because I got a chance to go and visit with her every week for an hour or so. And every time I'd walk in the door, she'd have on a sermon or something on the radio. 
on her AM radio. And she's always listening to things like that. Happy as she could be, just as content. You know, I think, was there anything you need? This must be miserable. You just sit in this house by yourself all the time. She's like, I've got everything I need. I'm more content. Besides, the, the Apostle Paul says you're supposed to be content with where you're at. And I'm just fine. And I'm just like, oh my God. I hear that three times a week to come and be content. Yeah. And everything else just kind of goes out the window and we sit down and just have a great conversation for an hour. But yeah. Isn't it easier to where be, she lives? Okay. But isn't it good. isn't it easier to be to live thankfully grateful if you're in the spirit rather than in the flesh? I mean, if you're in the flesh, you're thinking about all the things that are going wrong right now, about unpaid bills and, you know, troubles with work and, and this and that problem. But if you're thinking in the spirit and you have been blessed by God in ways that other people don't even understand, isn't it easier to live a life of gratitude and to give God thanks and to be less anxious about the things that are likely to crop up in your life if you're taking that approach to life in general? I think so. Let's read Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. We'll probably have time for another comment or two. Should be thinking about it. Jesus is calming the storm on Galilee. These are all familiar scriptures. Not surprising anybody, but what I hope you can do is see these scriptures a little differently now because we're talking about keeping our mind, keeping our eye on the ball. Now that we know what the ball is. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side, Jesus speaking. And leaving the crowd, they took him with they, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? But where are their minds? And honestly, wouldn't your mind be in the same place? Don't you think? Don't you care we're gonna die here? Well, but Jesus was in the boat. This is not just anybody, this is Jesus in the boat. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Then he turns his attention back to why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So in fairness, they still didn't quite know who Jesus was. They'd been with him some. They'd seen a miracle or two, but they still didn't understand who Jesus is. This is not just another prophet. This is not just another worker of miracles. This is one whom the sea and the wind obey. 
So they're surprised, and perhaps they should be, but Jesus kind of acts like they shouldn't be surprised. What do you think's gonna happen here? If Jesus is in the boat, what do you think is gonna happen here? You think it's just gonna, okay. So they all died, and that was the end of the story for Jesus. That would have been a disappointing end to the story, wouldn't it? And Jesus is saying, there's more to this story yet. It's not over. Don't worry, this is not the end. So you ought to have more faith and realize that there's somebody in the boat with you that's not just another prophet. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm thinking of an incident where the Apostle Paul might have been dissuaded from going back to Jerusalem because what had happened? Something about a prophet. Mm-hmm. He kind of he kind of did a little demonstration, didn't he? He bound himself with that with with uh, Paul's belt and he said yeah the person who owns this belt is going to be taken bound to Jerusalem and what was Paul's reaction okay let's go to Jerusalem <laughs> why are you going crying breaking my heart he says Well, that's kind of otherworldly, isn't it? What are some examples that you may be thinking of of people who acted in a way that might have been thought odd by the people around them? And I'm open to personal examples as well as biblical examples. Philip never questions how, I mean, uh, Ethiopian minutes never questions how Philip arrived at that scene and gets into the, the chariot. chariot with him. Okay. He's very focused on scripture. That's kind of curious in view of what you've been talking about. He's really focused on what's the scripture mean? And he doesn't question, how'd you get here, Philip? Philip understand, said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, yep. And Philip said, okay. And went home. <laughs> Carly. Uh, I think about Job and his friends coming to him. I mean, he was, you know, just kind of doing his thing, and his friends were like, just curse God and die. Like, what is, you're just sitting here, and this is all these terrible things are happening to you. And um, I think it really showed his heart, even in the worst of situations. Um, 
His friends obviously didn't understand. Yeah, they didn't. right. So Job was looking at the world differently than his friends were. It, 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 to them, it was obvious Job <clears throat> must have done some horrific wrong in order for all this to be happening to him. And Job defends himself, and of course that was a big mistake because then his friends were just convinced that not only was a sinner, he was a stubborn one. <clears throat> and uh, Job responds, uh, miserable comforters are you to me. Great friends. Uh, Jared's brother, what's your name again? <laughs> Justin. Justin, thank you. So I'll give more of a personal example, I guess. Uh, so where we kind of moved from, our area of the country over in Oregon, there's not as many religious people, um, or at least Christians. So the, the, a lot of people you talk to, very um, worldly-minded, atheists, that sort of thing. And when you talk about things like, oh yeah, we take the Lord's Supper, that's taking up his flesh, and and remembering his body and his, his blood. And, um, you know, you must be born again and, and all this. Okay. I mean, it's like so foreign, you know, because the mind is focused on things that are physical. Can't fathom there being a miracle that Jesus performed because it's not, it can't happen. It's not physical. And as a Christian, you have just a totally different mindset of knowing God's in control. He has all power. So people look at you like you sprouted another head. Sure. <laughs> look how the Israelites were acting when Moses went up, you know, in the mountains and stuff, and uh, how, and then uh, Aaron, you know, he he was so shocked by the way they were acting and stuff. That shocks me because I mean they saw it. I just don't know, you know, it just blows my mind, you know. Yeah. How could they have witnessed the things that they did yeah. and so quickly turned away? Yeah. You know, my, my mind's moving off where you, you got it right now, but I'm going back to Jesus being in the boat. Mm-hmm. You said something that stuck with me. You said, Jesus is in your boat. What can happen with Jesus in your boat? So maybe I'm the only one guilty of this, okay? Nobody else in here, but is Jesus in our boat? Okay, today? I think that's an excellent well, question for us to ask ourselves. what I mean by that is, they feared death right there, and they didn't have the full picture. Picture was still being painted of the Messiah. They should have known. The Israelites should have known. They should have seen Moses. We've got the full picture painted, and we should know how to separate, or better separate, the spirit from the physical. And so many times, we're faced. With things like losing a child at a carnival in 45 minutes, we're in panic. I do that. We all do that. But do we fear the physical like they did today? Do I do that? Do we do that? Knowing that Jesus is in our boat, as you said, that's the worst thing that can happen. The spiritual is really all that matters. The worst thing that can happen to me is I can die and then I get better, right? <laughs> so, we're, I won't say we, I am probably guilty. It's the same thing. But I've got the whole picture painted. So, we just need to make sure Jesus is in our place every day. Yeah, this uh, particular instance in Mark 4 is one of three instances that follow a deliberate pattern, the structure of the book of Mark, in which Jesus. Um, is demonstrating his abilities and his deity and his human form uh, in the face of his 
apostles' unbelief and this repeated, like we talked about, the fact that they should be acknowledging and uh, getting familiar with it, and they aren't um, every time. Uh, in a couple chapters, there's going to be an instance where a storm comes again, and Jesus is not in the boat. And they begin to freak out and get worried, saying, well, things are different this time because Jesus isn't physically here, but Jesus is on the other side. And in all of these stories, he says something important. He says, we're going to get in this boat, and we're going to go to the other side. Mm -hmm. Jesus gives them the assurance that they're going to be on the other side, and yet it's uh, somewhere around the halfway point that they begin to doubt that assurance. Mm -hmm. So I say all of this because, yes, spiritually, Jesus is always in a boat. Sometimes he doesn't feel like he's on in a boat. Sometimes he feels like he's on back at the shore. Um, but we do have the assurance that um, we'll get to the other side. And when you have that assurance, you know that <clears throat> all things are going to be okay in the end. And if they're not okay, it's not the end. Amen. Good. A lot of bad things happen along the way, right? Yes. Yeah. I still think people are... are even at the end on their dying beds, like the man I was talking about, he was 98, not 96. He was in his rightful mind. He never come out and said he was dying, but some of the things he said gave him the impression that he knew he was. Mm -hmm. And But then he would also talk about, where's my walking cane? I need it when I get home. Mm -hmm. And so I think I think even though you have the faith and you know that you're going to be okay and everything and the promises, I think you're still going to be scared of the unknown. I do. I, I mean, it's only human to be to feel that way. And and Jesus had some of those same emotions, didn't he, at the time that he knew his death was impending? Okay, last <coughs> last little thing before you leave. We've had some practice here. We've looked at some instances. Can we go out there and keep our eye on the ball? <laughs> Thank you. Okay.